Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 198 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Lauren Mulheim, an eating disorder psychologist who practices from a health at every size paradigm and specializes in helping kids and families recover from disordered eating. We discuss how we can model a peaceful relationship with food for the kids in our lives, the problem with quote-unquote childhood obesity interventions, ugh, even that term, how some eating disorder treatment methods are being co-opted for weight loss, the rise of orthorexia, weight bias in medicine and the eating disorders field, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener with initials BH, who writes, Christy, the biggest loser is back, and I am scared. I thought we had already learned how sick the contestants were after being on that show and how abusive it is, and apparently not. It's making a comeback in 2020, and the focus is supposed to be on quote-unquote wellness. This is a huge concern. How is this happening? And what are dietitians saying about this? You talk a lot about the myths of the wellness diet, and I would love to hear your thoughts on the return of the biggest loser. I feel like this is a crisis. So thanks, BH, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, ugh, yes, like I am really disheartened by this too. The Biggest Loser reboot really surprised me and just kind of came out of nowhere. I really would have thought that with all the terrible press they received from that study, that study that showed that people on The Biggest Loser went through major metabolic changes that caused them to inevitably regain weight, that the producers would just slink away with their tail between their legs. And because, you know, also people on that show developed eating disorders, they developed diet pill addictions. They had all kinds of terrible health consequences. And you would think that that would just make them think, okay, that didn't work. That was actually harmful. Even people who were involved in the show have spoken out about how harmful it was. But in a way, maybe this reboot is them trying to burnish their image and save the show from all that bad press. I don't know. But whatever the case, it's absolutely the epitome of the wellness diet. And the wellness diet is that sneaky form of diet culture that I'm always talking about that pretends to be about health and wellness, but is actually still just about thinness and weight loss, just now rebranded like, oh, weight loss is just a side effect of wellness. And it's totally not even the main point. But like, of course, it's the main point. And it's also, it's impossible to achieve quote-unquote wellness in the way that diet culture's new version of the wellness diet wants you to achieve without being thin. The wellness diet tells you that if you're not thin when you're doing quote-unquote wellness, then you're doing it wrong. 
And just like any other form of weight loss or dieting, the wellness diet does not work. It doesn't work long term. It doesn't have lasting results in terms of weight loss or in terms of health. And it generally results in obsession and unhappiness. You know, we have the term orthorexia now, which is defined as an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. But I really think that any obsession with quote unquote healthy eating is a problem no matter, you know, you can't dis- determine where it goes across the line from healthy obsession to unhealthy obsession. Being obsessed with eating in a quote-unquote healthy way, in a way that diet culture deems to be healthy, is a problem in and of itself, and people deserve help for that. And honestly, there's no way that this wellness diet reboot of The Biggest Loser is going to be any less abusive than the original series was. And you can tell that in the press releases because the producers say or the press release says that they're going to still be having quote unquote jaw dropping moments. And true well-being is never jaw-dropping because it's not something you can see or quantify. So if it were really about quote-unquote wellness, it would not be jaw-dropping at all. It'd be very subtle and have people going through epiphanies over a long term, a long period of time, not this sort of like fast-paced reality show thing that the show inevitably will have because it just doesn't make for good television to have people truly achieving well-being in whatever form that looks like for them. So weight loss is still definitely going to be very much a part of the show. I have no doubt because the show is still called The Biggest Loser, for God's sake. You know, they're just tacking on this idea of quote unquote wellness in order to trick people into thinking it's somehow better or different than the previous terrible version. So let's not be tricked. Let's not be fooled by this. This is just the same old shit in a different sandwich, as I always say. Same thing in a different package. And the previous version of The Biggest Loser caused people to develop eating disorders, cause people to develop diet pill addictions, and other profoundly negative health outcomes, as former contestant Kai Hibbard described in episode 133 of the podcast. She was on, I forget which season of The Biggest Loser, but she was on The Biggest Loser and then ended up speaking out against it because it was so harmful. So I highly recommend listening to that episode, episode 133. You can find that at christyharrison.com slash 133. She describes how she developed signs of malnutrition and had seriously disordered eating and then an autoimmune disease that got triggered after being on the show, likely because of all the stress her body was under from that starvation and overexercise that was imposed on it. So the bottom line is that this show is not health promoting and it never can be. And we need to do something to oppose it. You're absolutely right. So, you know, there's many different things you can do. You could boycott all NBC shows, which might be tough because they do make some other good TV, but that could definitely make a dent if enough people get on board and do it. We could also really raise a fuss on social media, although posting about things like this on social media is kind of a double-edged sword because it gives them more publicity. And, you know, as they say in the media world, all publicity is good publicity. So if there's controversy about something on social media, sometimes media companies thrive on that because it's like, oh, there's people then find out about it. Like, oh, I didn't know there was a Biggest Loser reboot. I'm going to tune in, right? That unfortunately, some people in your social media audience will probably be in that boat. And I recognize that even my talking about it here is giving them airtime, which I really don't love. But I've had a number of people ask for my opinion on this. And so I wanted to answer this question here. And I think a great way to oppose it would actually be to inundate 
NBC Universal's press contacts with emails. And I actually found those press contacts. They're listed on the press releases. So those press contacts are Catherine Nelson at USA Network. Her phone number is 212-664-5934. That's 212-664-5934. You could give her a call. Tell her what you think. Her email address is Nelson at nbcuni.com. That's Catherine, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E dot Nelson, N-E-L-S-O-N at nbcuni, U-N-I for universal dot com. And then there's also Joe Schlosser, who is the representative for Endemol Shine North America, which I think is like the production company or something that is working on this show. He is joe.schlosser, S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R, at endemolshine.us. That is E-N-D-E-M-O-L-S-H-I-N-E dot U-S. So, you know, reach out to those folks and tell them what you think about this Biggest Loser reboot. Tell them that you think this is terrible, that true well-being cannot be quantified or shown in quote-unquote jaw-dropping moments on reality television, and that this show has done enough harm and needs to be buried for good. It does not need to come back in 2020. And by the way, my book is coming out in 2020. We'll have more on that in just a second. And I think that hopefully anti-diet culture is just growing and there's going to be a lot more that's going to oppose The Biggest Loser than there ever was before. When they first launched, right, it was probably 2008, 2009. We didn't have the anti-diet movement that we do now in such a such a big way. So that is something to consider, too, that hopefully the fact that we are all thinking about this stuff and people are speaking out about this and that you all are going to be writing emails to these people and I'm going to be writing emails and calling Katherine Nelson at USA Network is going to do some good. And there are other dietitians speaking about this too. So BH who asked the question, just know that there are lots of people out there who are opposed to it and we're working to make that opposition known in ways that are not going to just amplify and give free airtime to this new show. So if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. I am so excited to say that this episode is brought to you by my forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available for pre-order now. Ah! I just found out right before I recorded this, and I'm seriously bouncing off the walls with this news. I'm so excited. So you can order the book now at christyharrison.com slash book, and pre-orders are incredibly helpful because they can actually propel the book to bestseller status which would be awesome, not just for me, but because that helps more people discover the anti-diet message so that this word gets out there so that we can change the world and so that you can have more allies out in the world who get what you're doing in making peace with food in your body and who can support you in your recovery from diet culture. I get so many questions from people asking how they can get through to people in their lives. And one of the ways is to get this book out there, to get people talking about it, to buy it for your friends and family. And that will really help build this movement as a whole. 
So here's a little taste of what is in the book. This is the text you'll see inside of the book jacket once you're holding it in your hands. If you're like most people, you've dieted at some point in your life. You've had negative thoughts about your body, carefully counted your calories, and obsessed over the ever-changing rules of quote-unquote healthy eating. Nearly all of us have. But studies have shown that well over 90% of people who manage to lose weight regain it within five years. If dieting is so ineffective, why are we so obsessed with it? The culprit is diet culture, a system of beliefs that equates thinness to health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, and demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others. It's sexist, racist, and classist, yet this way of thinking about food and bodies is so embedded in the fabric of our society that it can be hard to recognize. It masquerades as health, wellness, and fitness, and for some, it is all-consuming. In Anti-Diet, Christy Harrison takes on diet culture and the multi-billion dollar industries that profit from it, exposing all the ways it robs people of their time, money, health, and happiness. It will turn what you think you know about health and wellness upside down as Harrison explores the history of diet culture, how it's infiltrated the health and wellness world, all the sneaky forms it can take, and how letting go of efforts to lose weight or eat quote-unquote perfectly actually helps to improve people's health no matter their size. Drawing on scientific research, personal experience, and stories from patients and colleagues, Anti-Diet provides a radical alternative to diet culture and will help you reclaim your body, mind, and life so that you can focus on the things that truly matter. So that is my book. That's what my book is all about. It's a really deep dive into all the things we're always talking about here on this podcast. So if you found this show helpful, then you're definitely going to want to get the book. You can pre-order now at christyharrison.com slash book. And when you pre-order, it'll be delivered right to your door when it's out the first week of January 2020. My pub date is January 7th of 2020. But often with pre-orders, they come a little bit early too. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash book to see all the places you can pre-order. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Lauren Mulheim. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So I grew up in a financially comfortable family with a lot of privilege. I was an only child and an only grandchild in a Jewish family. And Early on, I think I had a really good relationship with food. Uh, We used to go to a certain restaurant when we were visiting my grandparents, and I always ordered lamb chops, and everyone thought it was the most adorable thing that I always ordered the lamb chops, and the waitresses would call me lamb chops, and and this went on for years. That's cute. Yeah, I, I loved food, and I was allowed to like food. And that went on uh, until puberty when I gained weight. And I come from a family of dieters that value thinness and people panicked when I gained some weight. My immediate lineage is pretty thin. And both my mother and maternal grandmother had a history of dieting. So it was probably around 13 or 14 when I was introduced to dieting. They hadn't really said anything before that? It wasn't pushed on you or anything? No. Before puberty, really, there was no, I think, awareness of my part. Although, historically, it's really interesting. I wrote a blog post recently 
about my grandmother, who's 103. And I went to visit her and she's now in an assisted living and she has a toilet with bars around it to help her get on and off. And very striking right next to the toilet is her bathroom scale. And she still weighs herself. I don't know how she gets on it, but she still weighs herself. And to me, that was a really striking image that I wrote about. And I actually did an interview with her when she was when she turned 100 about that and, and why dieting was so important to her. And she tells the story that when she was nine, her piano teacher told her that she needed to lose weight. And that had a very big impact. And her story is that she lost a lot of weight in college before by dieting. And actually through some diet pills that I think later were turned out to be very dangerous because she's 103. So this was the 30s, I guess. Oh, yeah. There are some really, really dangerous things on the market then. Yeah. So this was early dieting. And she credits this diet with my grandfather falling in love with her and they were married for, I don't know, 70 years. That's kind of where my family comes from, the history of dieting. Yeah. It's a long lineage and it, it sounds like it, yeah, it had this real importance to her. I mean, if you think about that too, like she was probably born in what, the 19 teens, right? That was the heyday well, one of the early, the early heyday of diet culture, that was like when it first caught fire. So I can imagine growing up then would be incredibly fraught for a little kid. Yeah. And she was an immigrant from Russia. And I think she was bullied a little bit as a kid. And so I think that dieting became her safety. Yeah. A way to fit in, a way to, to feel accepted. Yes. Yeah. And my mom was a dieter. So then in my very early teens, I started doing some dieting with my mom. And as I got older, I was actually sent to some diet programs. I was sent to Diet Center. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I haven't heard of that one, no. That was big in, I guess, the 80s. And I, I remember I had to take like baked chicken with me. And I was, it, it was really hard because at that point, like my friends were starting to drive and they were going out for lunch for pizza and I was bringing my chicken. And then I did Weight Watchers and a private dietitian, uh, but I couldn't really stick to a diet at that point. I would lose weight and then gain it back really quickly. And then I think that the worst part was when it felt like because I was an only child that all my, that my parents and all my grandparents were very focused on my weight. And I remember thinking that it had to do with being an only child, that if I just had a sibling, like some of this pressure would be off me that, you know, like, why did I have to be the smart one and the thin one? You know, it just felt like a lot of pressure. Yeah. Every, all eyes on you. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember just being puzzled about why it was so important to all of them. So then it was like dieting and gaining it back. And it was this was through high school. And when I was with my parents, I would do a really good job of restricting. And then when I was away from them, I would gain it back. So 
then I arrived at college and I was pretty confused about how to eat. And so luckily I found a therapist and I got into therapy. And I remember my therapist said, like, why don't you just have a sandwich for lunch? (laughs) And I was like, really? Like, you can have a sandwich? Like, I thought you could only have like salads for lunch. And that like just broke this whole like confusing disordered eating that I had developed as a result of all this dieting. That's really lucky that you stumbled into that therapist. I know. I know. It was really lucky. And it was like really, I remember it was like just like it hit me and it was like that simple. And I, at that point, realized I just couldn't diet. I was not a good dieter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, nobody is, right? Like, that's the that's the catch. Right. I think a lot of people don't even really lose much weight on diets. Their bodies are just resistant to any sort of weight loss because they're trying to survive. And then other folks might lose weight in the short term, but then gain it back because their bodies also want to survive. And it's like up to 98% of people who lose weight in the short term put it back on within five years, you know? And we have new research on that too, which is exciting. I think it's just such a futile process. And yet we come to blame ourselves again and again. Right. Right. Yeah. So that was my own experience in diet culture. Fortunately, I got in and out pretty early and never went back. So. Wow. That's incredible. What about with your parents? Like, I mean, when you were working with that therapist, it sounds like you just felt the sense of permission to suddenly go back to eating in a more intuitive way and not not worry about all the diet stuff. But when you went back home for holidays and whatever, did your parents comment on your body? Did, was there pressure to diet again? And how did you navigate that? You know, I don't even remember. I remember I just felt such relief at that point. And I think I just somehow let them know that I had worked it out and they never really commented again. I think maybe there were some comments when I was pregnant about, you know, worries about what was going to happen to my body, but it was very minimal. They've really, they got the message. And was your therapist at the time someone who was in the intuitive eating or eating disorder recovery field, even if it wasn't called intuitive eating at that point yet? Or was it just a really sort of down-to-earth therapist? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think she had some eating disorder experience. So she was able to see that I was restricting myself and and then compensating for it. That's great. What a lucky person to stumble into. Yeah. Yeah, I was really lucky. Good therapy makes a big difference. It really does. Did that change the course of your studies in college then, or were you already working to become a therapist? You know, I can't remember the exact timing on everything, but I started out college as actually an engineer. But my first semester, I was taking physics French to fulfill the language requirement, and I was not good in languages. I was taking math, and it was multi—it was um, linear algebra and multivariable calculus, and there were no numbers left. And I had a teacher who was French with a very strong French accent that I couldn't understand. And psychology 101. <laughs> so 
<laughs> I I kind of think that part of it was just it was like the only class that I could really relate to at that point that drew me in. But I think ultimately I realized that I was much more interested in people than engineering. And it probably just all together at the same time through my own therapy and liking psychology better than the math science classes I had thought I would like. That makes sense. Those sound incredibly hard. I'm sure for some people that's like super exciting. But for me, I'm just like, oh, God, my brain hurts just thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was when the numbers disappeared from math that I really... Like, how is that even... ah, (laughs) Breaks my head. Yeah, it was like 3D mapping. I couldn't visualize it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's rough. I just can't relate to that level of math detail. Yeah, it's incredible. I really admire people whose minds work like that because it's just so foreign to me. And it's like, wow, that's, you know, completely different sort of brain capacity that people have. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a relief to find psychology and to find something that I could really understand and relate to. And so did you think about pursuing an eating disorder specialization at that point or um, was it sort of more general? No, it was very general. And I don't think, you know, I didn't identify myself as having an eating disorder. I identified myself as having a weird relationship with food and a dieting history. And, you know, I think looking back, I definitely had disordered eating brought on by dieting. And really, my interest in psychology was much broader than that. And it was in graduate school when I, and I, and I went straight from undergraduate to graduate school, which was pretty unusual in terms of doctoral programs. So I really didn't have a lot of background information. And I was in a PsyD program, so it was much more clinically focused than research. And the way I ended up in eating disorders was a actually a friend from college who was a year ahead of me who was also in the graduate program had started doing some work with Terry Wilson who was at Rutgers and Terry Wilson was the the main collaborator with Chris Fairburn and the two of them created CBT for eating disorders and Fairburn went on to write the CBTE manual in 2008 but they were doing early research together in fact it was so early that like bulimia was newly diagnosed and Terry Wilson had actually been running an alcohol behavior lab where I think he would have college students get drunk and study them. (laughs) (laughs) And he was (laughs) slowly closing down that lab and actually building a bulimia research lab. And he was starting to do multi-site trials with Fairburn and Tim Walsh at Columbia. And so he was started and it was like the most applied clinical research that anyone was doing and other than that there was like autism research and I knew I wanted to do clinical work so when this friend of mine had said he had started to work with him I was like oh that sounds really cool and he Terry Wilson really didn't like PsyD students that much he had research students in the PhD program assigned to him so it was kind of a lot of work to convince him to let you work with him and I think you know, because of the cognitive dissonance in that, like, this <laughs> challenge that, like, I had to work really hard to get him to accept me that I really, really liked it. 
And the other interesting, like we talk about some of the some of the rifts in the field between like diet and non-diet and haze and non-haze. But back then in my program, the big distinction was between psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral therapy. And I was actually in the psychodynamic track and pursuing what I thought was going to be a career in doing psychoanalytic therapy. And Terry Wilson was running this cognitive behavioral therapy lab <laughs> to treat bulimia. And I went and I started training with him and I was just blown away by the effectiveness of CBT for bulimia. And for people who don't know the distinctions there, could you give a little overview of like the difference between psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral therapy? Sure. Yeah. So psychodynamic therapy focuses on looking at the unconscious and early childhood factors in terms of what has caused a problem and using psychoanalytic therapy focuses on using the therapeutic relationship to understand your current conflicts and how they relate to past relationships. So it's kind of looking at early factors and, and their cause, how they've caused current problems. And cognitive behavioral therapy is really a here and now therapy focused on what in your current life is maintaining the problem versus what caused it originally. And so it there's a big, I guess, conflict in the field between the two different main theories of therapy. And so it was, to me, a big shift when I, when I made that leap from pursuing psychoanalytic therapy to focusing on cognitive behavioral therapy, which psychodynamic people think is like superficial mm. and not getting at the, the underlying issue. But there's really good research behind cognitive behavioral therapy. And the question is, do we have to go back and understand what caused it to solve it? And so at that point in the, it was the 90s at that point, there, they were starting to do clinical trials of CBT for bulimia and getting really good results compared to any other treatment that had been studied at the time. And so they had an early manual and I still have my <laughs> typed original manual from, from the 1990s that was the precursor to CBTE, which has been the most studied treatment for adults with eating disorders. So that was my training, and I got what I thought was just amazing training with direct supervision from Terry Wilson, and I had really good experience with being able to help people who'd had bulimia for long periods of time recover. And I think I also related to the anti-dieting message that was really inherent in CBT. So I think I just loved the work. And I think at that point in the 90s, not that many people had had training, you know, specifically for bulimia, much less training in an evidence-based treatment. And that's interesting that you say the haze or the non-diet message was sort of inherent in CBT at the time because of course now we don't see that right like now we see people using there's still people who use CBT of course in that haze non-diet framework like you and so many other great haze therapists but also there's people who are trying to use CBT for weight loss and promoting it as a basically as a diet 
like a psychology diet. And I'm wondering, you know, in your experience, like when did you see that shift happen, like that rift in the field become more about haze versus non-haze or weight loss versus non-weight loss people in the eating disorder space? Yeah, so that's really interesting. And in fact, so the talk I just gave at the International Conference on Eating Disorders with Rachel Milner was on when Hayes meets the evidence-based ther- therapies and and what's their alignment or conflict. And, you know, going back to my bulimia research lab, when I was working with Terry, they were just starting. So binge eating disorder was not even a diagnosis yet. It was a potential diagnosis. And Terry was on the work group and, you know, they were coming up with what it was. And so back then, I was supposed to start a group with patients with what they were calling uh, obese binge eaters. And they were going to try to treat them using CBT, but the the treatment was going to be the the CBT for bulimia, so 20 sessions, and then they were going to follow it with behavioral weight loss using Kelly Brownell's program, which I think was the LEAP program. So that was the original understanding of binge eating was that first you stop the binge eating and then, of course, you do weight loss. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so I think the conflict was there initially. And I think that, you know, CBT definitely has a a history of of weight loss. And there are unfortunately many people still using it for weight loss. And, you know, I think that that's the inherent weight bias in the field, right, is that if people are larger, they must need to lose weight. And so that was originally conceptualized as going to be part of the treatment for them. And I think that's one of the things that Rachel and I want to draw attention to is that we can just do the CBT <laughs> for for binge eating and take out all the weight loss and that it's a great treatment. But we have to really look back at these treatments and find the places where where they are weight biased and because unfortunately the as the ways they're manualized there's still a lot of mixed messages in them and of course they're the most treatments that most people get training in someone just wrote a question to me recently that i answered on the podcast about a manual for binge eating disorder that they were using at their treatment center and i think this person was a dietitian i want to say but she was having to do lead groups in being guided by this manual and the manual had so many mixed messages. It was, sounded horrifying. I mean, she said it was like, you know, you present the options to the people and they have the option of doing intuitive eating. They also have the option of doing weight loss and surgery and all these other things. And you present these things as these are your potential options for after binge eating therapy or whatever. And it just sounded so confusing for the clients. And that was kind of my point in answering the question too, was like, this is extremely confusing and uh, an eating disorder treatment center should be a space where you're learning about this completely different way of relating to food in your body and not being thrown back into the fire of diet culture and having these messages of, or you could do this and lose weight is, is just so seductive to someone who's in that eating disorder mindset. Yeah. And lots of mixed messages in these manuals. We found lots of examples where it's like, you know, you can see the 
the people writing them are are on the fence. They say in the first sentence, like, diets don't work. But then they say, like, but after you stop binge eating, you'll lose weight naturally. Or, you know, then you can do kind of safe dieting or controlled, you know, it was... As though there's something, like, yeah. Yeah. Ugh, that's so confusing and frustrating. Having been in the field for such a long time for when binge eating disorder and cognitive therapy started to kind of dovetail. I'm sure that's been a frustrating thing for you to have to witness and sort of push back against this whole time too. And I think I have come to Hayes, you know, really over the last 10 years. So I was not, I, I was not Hayes initially. And I think for many of us, there's been a, a growth and a transformation that's happened. And I think some people are slower to come there. And some of the people who are, have been in the field longer, I think, are, are still stuck. So I think we need to have, you know, more conversations and try to get more people to shift and look at these mixed messages. Yeah. So I'm curious about that transition for you. How did your career progress from there? And I I feel the same way too in terms of like having come to Hayes after some time working in the field, not being Hayes and having it be a slow transition because we're also steeped in diet culture that it's really hard not to be. But also like I had my own experience of disordered eating and recovery through intuitive eating and yet wasn't when I recovered initially and of course, recovery in so many ways is like peeling back the layers of an onion. You know, there's just more and more to do. But I think that initial like behavioral recovery where I stopped using disordered behaviors, I was in graduate school to become a dietitian. And so, you know, I was like, okay, great. Now I'm much more chill around food. And yet I was going out and doing these very weight stigmatizing interventions with people or very food shaming interventions and not really seeing how that connected. Cause I was like, oh, well they're quote unquote overweight or quote unquote obese. So they quote unquote need to lose weight. And of course now I see that as really problematic and just part of diet culture and weight stigma. But at the time I didn't know any of that. And so it was like, oh yeah, that's what you do. Like it's, it wasn't a disconnect for me as a thin person to be eating intuitively and for me to be telling other people, you need to shrink your body. Yeah. I think realize looking back and realizing how you were complicit with diet culture is, you know, can be hard. And I definitely had some of that. I mean, interestingly, my career has taken really interesting <laughs> turn. So I followed my husband to Los Angeles and I found out that I had, I did a, like a, an internship at a VA and a postdoc at Kaiser where I got really good training. And then I followed my husband to Los Angeles and I found out I was pregnant and had passed the licensing exam within like a two day period. Oh, wow. So I thought, oh God, I better grab a job. And back then it was like, how do you find jobs? And I was looking in the newspaper and I knew no one in LA and there was an ad for a weight loss program and like behavioral weight loss. And so I showed that to my husband and I applied for that. And I was like, I have, you know, CBT and, you know, eating experience. And then the job below it was um, a therapist for group homes. And my husband said, why don't you apply for that too? <laughs> and it was for adolescents. And I had no adolescent experience at that point, but I applied. And they immediately called me for an interview. And it turns out like it was a 
place with group homes. And they had two young adult group homes and the therapist for that program had just quit. So I was able to interview for the young adult group homes. And I got the job pretty quickly and I grabbed it. And then like three months later, after I had been working, the the weight loss job got back to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, So that was fortunate that I didn't I didn't take that job. I never interviewed for it. Yeah. And then I was at that job for like a year and a half and my son was born and it was an awful job. It was just tons of paperwork and high turnover. And then my supervisor had left and I really loved my supervisor. And she's like, I know a great place that's hiring tons of people and I'll help you get in. And it was LA County Jail. (laughs) So I was like, sounds great. (laughs) And... (laughs) And then I, that started my 10-year stint working um, in the women's section of L.A. County Jail. And that was not eating disorder work. That was just general psych and a lot of crisis intervention. And it was fascinating work. It was mostly with the severely mentally ill and gravely disabled and, it, you know, really sad situations. But I really liked working there. And I was there for 10 years. And then I was just starting to miss doing real psychotherapy. And I had started a very part-time private practice. And at that point, my husband started commuting to China for work. So then it turns out we were all moving to China. So I quit quit the job at the jail. And I remember thinking like, I may never work again. And my kids may never know what it's like to have a working mother because I just had no idea what was going to happen. And we moved to China and we lived, we were there for two and a half years. And I remember trying to like do some research to figure out if I could work there. And I found this Dutch psychologist and she's like, well, when you get here, we'll have coffee. And so I went to have coffee with her. And when I said that I had eating disorder experience, she literally handed me a case and said, okay, we need you. (laughs) And there were like 240,000 expats in Shanghai and about 30 foreign therapists. And so I ended up working at the community center. And then I got another job in China working at a clinic that took foreign insurance and treated expats. And I had patients scheduled through a call center. So I ended up treating like and seeing all kinds of things. People didn't ask what my experience was. I had couples in the middle of contentious divorces and OCD. And I was consulting with people around the world. And then I kept finding other therapists. And so eventually I started a professional organization in China of Shanghai International Mental Health Association. And so that was a really fun experience, two and a half years working there with a very multicultural group of people. That sounds so fascinating. Yeah. It was amazing. And then, of course, when I said I had eating disorder experience, all these expats with eating disorders came to me. And most of my experience had been adults with bulimia. (laughs) So then I was getting adolescents with anorexia and I didn't know what to do. So I started researching and learning about family-based treatment, which is a newer evidence-based treatment that came out of the UK. And it 
focuses, it's a manualized treatment and it focuses, it's very different than traditional treatment. It focuses on putting parents in charge of basically a behavioral treatment in the home where the parents re-nourish the adolescent back to health and they help to stop eating disorder behaviors, including dieting, binging, purging. And it seemed like a great fit for Shanghai when where parents were faced with sending their kids to the US or Australia. So I actually flew from Shanghai to Stanford for the weekend to do the FBT training. And I started doing FBT. And then of course, our expat assignment ended and we moved back to LA at that point. So at that point, I decided that I really just wanted to focus on eating disorders. And that's when I started my practice and continued my training in family-based treatment and got supervision and got certified in FBT and just really fell in love with family-based treatment. Yeah, that's fascinating. How did that play into the haze and non-diet approach? Did you find that FBT was more conducive to that? Is that more written into the manuals or is it again kind of mixed messages? I think there's less incompatibility. There's less in the manual, except when you read the stuff about there is some FBT for obesity. But I kind of (laughs) dissociate myself from that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And interestingly, the the FBT for binge eating disorder has been less successful than FBT for AN and BN. And I wonder if part of that is the, the weight stigma stuff and not having a firm haze background in it. That's, but I, I don't, I don't know because I'm not involved in the research, but definitely what, what Rachel and I found when in preparing for our talk was that there can be much more easy alignment between FBT and haze, but it's definitely in the way that it's implemented. And I think the major way is in the setting of goal weights. So interestingly, Three researchers, Jocelyn LeBeau, Leslie Sim, and Erin Accurso, did a study of providers' setting of goal weights. And there's no standard in the field for that, for adolescent anorexia. But what they found was that FBT-trained therapists, I believe it was a study of therapists, were more likely to use the adolescent's own growth curve, which to me is a way of incorporating haze, at least somewhat. And I think, you know, again, we don't have guidelines and there's, when you've got an adolescent who started out at a higher weight, I think there's so much pressure against returning them to that higher weight, you know, that even if the therapist says like, yeah, we got to go back to that, you're rarely going to find a a doctor who's going to agree to that. So I think that's one of the challenges. Yeah. Doctor and dietitian too, right? That's like the other parts of the field can be more entrenched and weight biased. I mean, especially medical doctors, I think it's just not as well understood in that field. Yeah. I I had an experience recently with a doctor and I said like, they should go back to this weight. And the doctor actually said to me, well, at that age, this is what I weighed. (laughs) Saying that using her own weight history. And I was like, what? That's (laughs) <laughs> okay, we're going by your way, not the adolescence way. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, and it, I think it's hard even when, because I know I wrestle with that too. Like when you've got someone who came in at a higher weight, there's so much pressure to say like they should go back to that. And 
I think it's really hard to go against this diet mindset that's everywhere. And so we definitely need better information. And that's actually one of the reasons I'm actually doing some research with the same researchers who wrote that paper and we're studying parents. We've gotten, I think, like over 200 parents who've responded to this survey and we're trying to see if we can gather data from parents on weight histories and recovery weights and see what we find about weights that are required for full recovery. I've had arguments with people about that say that you shouldn't use the growth curve, that you should use BMI percentile. And these are prominent people in the field. Oh, that's terrible. I mean, I know that we have evidence in adults, right, that that shows if someone's target weight in recovery is set too low, their likelihood of recovery is very low, is much lower than if their target weight. And, you know, there's obviously so many issues with that in general of like having a target weight because who's setting the target weight? What are the biases they're bringing to the table? The fact that weight is even such a important measure in eating disorder recovery is kind of problematic as well. But really the, the evidence shows that if someone's weight is suppressed through disordered eating and their treatment team says like, oh, you only have to recover to this weight, which is lower than what their body naturally wants to be and would be with full, full, complete, true recovery and not using the behaviors anymore and not being governed by eating disorder thoughts anymore. If the weight target is set too low, people are just going to stay in that disordered place or the eating disorder is still going to have a foothold, right? And they really need to be allowed to recover to the weight that their body naturally ends up at when they're not using disordered behaviors. And we can't really know that ahead of time, but I think the best way to predict that is to look at like where they were on the growth, you know, for adolescents, where they were on the growth curve as kids, because the growth curve really tracks what their body was going to do naturally that whole time. Right. Yeah. And, and that's why I think most FBT therapists and people who've been trained in FBT therapy do look at the growth curve. Although really interesting research out of UNC recently showed that, adult, that adolescents who develop anorexia may have fallen off the growth curves before age four. It's before two and four based on gender. I can't remember which is which. So if that's the case, even if we restore them to the growth curve, it may be inadequate. Right. I saw that and I was interested in that from the lens that I come at things from of diet culture. I'm like, was this that they had doctors or family members telling them that they the, the child or the baby was too fat and needed to be shrunk at that point? Or, you know, like what could have been going on there? I know that Cindy Bullock's interpretation is that there may be metabolic factors that play a role early on you know, they may just be more, you know, like have a higher metabolism or something with that makes them prone to losing weight easily or something like that. I think that's one of the interpretations that I've heard discussed. And it does seem true that when people unintentionally lose weight, it can trigger anorexia or trigger, a, you know, propensity for an eating disorder that might have been underlying because that starvation response in the body sort of kicks off this cascade, right? Right. Yeah. And 
and Cindy talks a lot about the energy imbalance and that being a, you know, a way into an eating disorder. Which is why dieting is such a risk factor too, right? Because you can't necessarily know if you have that genetic tendency toward an eating disorder from the outset, if you're not having that energy imbalance. And then something that, you know, maybe it something unintentionally causes it, or maybe you start dieting and create that energy imbalance. And suddenly it's like, off to the races, there's the eating disorder. Right. Yep. So yeah, I'm curious with FBT, how you work with families and help them help them help their kids recover, but also help the parents model more intuitive behaviors with food and less dieting, less disordered eating for their kids without putting the blame on parents, but really helping the whole family heal. Yeah. So in FBT, the focus is really on the healing through family meals. So I think parents have a fabulous opportunity to model eating foods that their adolescent is afraid of. And I think the, we're all immersed in diet culture. So parents have often been instructed by health professionals to diet themselves and to keep their children's eating healthy. And so they've just been following directions <laughs> all along. So we just need to give them different directions. And in most cases, parents get it pretty quickly that when they see their adolescent has taken the diet to an extreme and has an eating disorder, they are they get the message pretty quickly that they need to model and incorporate more foods. And I actually have in my, in the book I wrote about FBT, in the supplemental materials, I have a great example of a mom who was not a patient, but who talked about how she was confronted in a, a family group about how you better just eat what your kid needs to eat. <laughs> and she did. And it made all the difference. And I think many parents do report that they gain weight along with their adolescence. And I think being able to tolerate that is, is great modeling for what the adolescent is going through. Harriet Brown talked about that so beautifully in her book, Body of Truth. And I know she wrote a previous book about helping her daughter recover from anorexia too. But she said that her awakening around this haze stuff was really when her daughter was recovering and she had to eat all the foods her daughter was eating too and and gained weight and had to sit with that fact and that experience and did her own therapy and learned to accept herself. And I thought that was just a beautiful model of how families can recover together from diet culture and how like a child's eating disorder in a way is sort of a wake-up call to the whole family to deal with their relationship with food in a new way. Yeah. And, and I really see that happen a lot. And the parent community has really become, I think, strong supporters of Hayes. And they're some of the ones who are saying that, you know, providers are setting target weights too low. So, yeah, I think in, in many cases, the family really goes through a, a recovery from diet culture. Along with their kid, totally. Yeah. And they all say that, you know, it's worth it to get their child well. Yeah, it's so sad that it sort of takes that level of dysfunction in a child's relationship with food to kick the parents into gear sometimes, you know, because I think it's in our culture, it's so normalized, right, for parents to be dieting, for everyone to be dieting. And 
I think people don't necessarily see their own disordered behaviors as problematic until they reach that threshold of full-blown eating disorder, which is something that I've been talking a lot about lately. I just feel like, you know, I get that we need to have clinical criteria for eating disorders for things like insurance and research and that that's the system we live in. But I also think it's super problematic that we have these clinical criteria where the sort of general medical field can kind of dismiss eating disorders as, oh, that's such a niche specialization. There's only a few percent of people have eating disorders. It's such a small concern. Really, the problem is, quote unquote, obesity and actually disordered eating and the full spectrum of problematic relationship with food affects almost everyone. I would say pretty much everyone in this culture has been touched by it. And some of us have come out of it and recovered. Some folks struggle with sort of low-level disordered eating behaviors and disordered thoughts that don't really interfere with our lives so much, but do a little bit. And then a lot of folks struggle with those low-level behaviors really interfering with their life and taking away their time and their money and their health and their happiness. And that just sort of continues on the spectrum to full-blown eating disorders. But the the fact that we have these sort of strict cutoffs where it's like, oh, this person has an eating disorder and this person's just fine when really this person is actually dieting and struggling and in pain, I think that's a real problem in the field. Yeah, totally. The problem is is really big. Yeah, it's bigger than it's, bigger than it's made out to be in mean, the research or in the, in the field. And I think, yeah, we need to start looking at disordered eating as a valid clinical construct and something to study and research too. Because, I mean, especially with behaviors like, I mean, really every behavior, you know, restriction, binging, purging, all of it is problematic. But there's certain behaviors are normalized in our culture and certain behaviors are demonized, you know? And it's like, why is it when someone is is using this behavior a certain number of times per week, it becomes problematic, but otherwise it's quote unquote normal. Whereas other behaviors are like, oh, that's kind of a problem any way you slice it. But people still don't get diagnosed with eating disorders. Yeah. And the cultural value supports restriction for so many people. Yeah. Restriction is is held up as like the goal for everyone. So the fact that some people engage in it sub-threshold, you know, subclinically is like, oh, that's that's just healthy eating, quote unquote. Yeah. It's incredibly frustrating. Yep. <laughs> so much work to do. Just gets overwhelming. Yeah, so much work. I'm curious to know, sort of in your experience in the field too, what has changed over the years in family-based therapy and also just in in sort of general eating disorder treatment. Um, in terms of people's awareness of haze and diet culture, and also in terms of the new manifestations of eating disorders we're seeing, because I know you had were quoted in a great piece about orthorexia recently and how that's such a sort of modern aspect of eating disorders. Yeah, I think how eating disorders take on the cultural values is really interesting. And orthorexia is definitely one of the newer manifestations that I'm seeing. I think family-based treatment is still um, not as widely accepted as I would like to see it. I think it's still seen as kind of a, a fringe treatment, and I'm not sure why. I have some ideas why, but I would like it to be 
more widely accepted. I think it's a really good treatment. It's relatively cost effective. It makes so much sense. You don't, even if kids end up needing to go to residential, they come home and they're not really ready to be in charge of their food. And it makes so much more sense to give them more time where the parents are in charge of food until they can really make good food decisions on their own. And I think Haze is becoming more widely accepted. I was really excited at ICED when Rachel and I presented to find some other people who are longtime evidence-based therapy practitioners really saying like, yes, this makes sense. We need to incorporate Haze. And I think that to me is, is one of the more hopeful things. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it is still... I did a debate recently with a quote-unquote obesity expert and did another debate uh, following up the one that I did at Fancy, the Conference for Dietitians, like a regional debate with the same person. And it was still so frustrating to see that side's take on things and the way that they interpret things. And this time I went first in the debate. And so my like did my opening arguments first and I talked about how the, even the term obesity is stigmatizing and how weight stigma is likely more of a health risk than weight itself and we shouldn't even be framing weight itself as a health hazard because it's confounded by weight stigma and weight cycling and this whole thing it was just you know the whole haze paradigm kind of laid it out and then this guy gets up and is like obesity is a disease <laughs> just like my mind like exploded at that point because I'm like really after all after all that I just said there's no even acknowledgement of like there's no rebuttal to that there's no you know it's just obesity is a disease and it's like that's what we're fighting against but I also was heartened there to see a lot of Hayes folks in the audience and Hayes oriented questions from people in the Q&A and it is growing it is a growing field so that's cool yeah yeah and I love to give talks and expose people to Hayes and and you see their minds are kind of blown just trying to understand this new paradigm. Yeah, it really is completely different than what we are all raised in. Yeah. What do you see in, in terms of the families you work with? I'm curious to know like how parents react to Hayes and how for those parents listening, because I know I get a fair number of questions from parents asking how they can support their kids in developing a peaceful relationship with food and not pass on the disordered stuff that they themselves have. And they tend to be oftentimes, you know, parents that I work with too as clients tend to be very anxious and upset and worried that they're harming their children, you know, with these dieting and disordered eating behaviors that they've engaged in and, and maybe shown to their kids over a period of years. And, you know, now the kids are six or seven or whatever, and have absorbed some of these messages already. So what's your take on that and how parents can really model a more peaceful relationship with food for their kids and, and also how they can kind of get their head around this new paradigm for themselves? Yeah. So when I work, I work a lot with adults with eating disorders, and a lot of them have small children. So what I like to do is introduce the work of Ellen Satter and her division of responsibility. And parents, I think, 
find that also a big challenge at first too. And so basically her philosophy is that parents decide what and when to feed kids and children decide how much. And she, she encourages parents putting all the components of a meal out and letting the child make the decisions on what and how much of each to eat. And I think that is different from what many parents do and many parents are anxious, but oh my God, what if they don't eat the vegetables? And, but there's really good research behind her approach. And I think at first parents will observe that, you know, the child may at first continue to eat the overvalued foods that maybe they had been restricted from that weren't kept in the house. But over time, the child starts to eat all the foods and will even ask for vegetables or fruit. So I think that is a really good model for parents who's of younger kids and who where the kid does not have an eating disorder. I think it's a different story when when the child has an eating disorder diagnosis. And then the family-based treatment is is really different. It's about not giving the child and not putting the eating disorder in charge. Right. Because, yeah, giving the child a choice at that point really means giving the eating disorder the choice to control what the child eats. And that's going to mean the child restricts and tries to eat in a sort of orthorexic way or whatever, you know, follow whatever food rules their eating disorder is telling them to follow. Right. Yeah. So the the family-based treatment is like totally different. It's for a child who has an eating disorder and it's about not allowing the eating disorder to make the food decisions. Yeah. And and how does that, I'm curious to know sort of where that line is, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's just for kids who've been diagnosed with an eating disorder, right? It's not, you wouldn't recommend someone who suspects their kid has an eating disorder to implement family-based treatment. Well, I think with an early signs of an eating disorder, if your child is restricting or refusing to eat, or you're worried they're not eating enough, or they've lost weight or fallen off the growth curve, I think there are some times when you can implement family-based treatment. And I actually wrote a blog article with Therese Waterhouse on using FBT as an early intervention. And it was based on actually our experience with two of our kids, one of, one of hers and one of mine. So how we saw something. I observed my daughter who was in club sports at that time. And she, I had just done FBT training (laughs) and she was doing a ton of sports and she would come home from soccer and not want to eat dinner because I think she was just so expended. And then there were some other things where she like went for a run and, and said, I feel great. And then she was picking the fat off bacon and said that, and, and it was a textural thing. Like she had never liked crusts or whatever, but that was weird. <laughs> and so I did this intervention where basically I required, I started requiring her to eat dinner at four o'clock and she couldn't go to soccer unless she ate. And then she had to have a second dinner when she came home. And looking back, like two years later, she had totally fallen off her growth curve at that point. And I think, I don't know whether she would have developed an eating disorder, but I think that this intervention helped get her back on her growth curve. And you can very clearly see that this intervention did 
get her back. And it was interesting because at the time the pediatrician said she's where everyone would want to be. She's at the percentile for height and the percentile for weight. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and then if you look back at the growth curve, she had totally fallen off her weight curve. So it was really interesting. Yeah. So I don't know whether she would have had an eating disorder or not, but it was like a pretty easy intervention. And I'm glad I did it. That's amazing. And it, yeah, it does sound like she was maybe at least at risk because we, we do have that research now showing that kids that maybe a risk factor for anorexia is falling off their growth curve. So it's, that's a great sort of preventative measure. It sounds like. Yeah. And how did she respond to that? She was fine. She, you know, she happily complied. She wanted to go to soccer And it wasn't a big deal. And, uh, you know, just everyone in the family knew, like, she has to eat. Like, we're worried about her. She has to eat. And there was a little more attention to, like, make sure that she ate enough. I mean, there were other things that seemed to change as she gained weight and got back on her growth curve. And I, I, like I, I said at the time, I hadn't even, like, looked at the growth curve. But looking back, it was so obvious. And she, you know, then went back to her growth curve and it has been fine ever since. And I don't think she even really remembers that. (laughs) So, I mean, that really speaks to the pitfalls of sports in this culture in some ways. And just the fact that pediatricians wouldn't pick up on that either. The fact that they were like, oh, she's where everyone wants to be is so problematic rather than recognizing that for her, that weight was too low. That was, that was off her growth curve and that was probably dangerous. Yeah, and it could have been the energy imbalance caused by the the club soccer. And I don't think she was, you know, I think this could have been one of those examples of unintentional weight loss triggering an eating disorder. Interestingly enough, so she had, you know, grew up before growing out. My other two children gained weight before growing up, and the same pediatrician's office gave me the the warning about the other two, about them gaining too much weight. And for this child, the one who grew up first, I I didn't get a warning about her falling off her growth curve. So it just shows the inherent weight bias in pediatrics. That's so frustrating. And I think it really speaks to such a like, short view that they're taking of size and weight that, you know, kids naturally are going to have to both gain weight and height. That's just what happens in childhood, you grow. And the demonization of weight gain and the lionization of height gain is just it's such a short view because really in the long term both have to happen and whatever order they happen in who cares like it's it's the child's natural development we need to support that exactly yeah and i've thought if pediatricians were paying more attention to the kids falling off the growth curve we might spot some earlier cases of eating disorders i bet we would And I mean, it's the sort of like, quote unquote, childhood obesity interventions now are forcing kids off their growth curve, too. It's active weight suppression of children. I mean, when I was in school for dietetics, I learned in nutrition in the life cycle, like we never want kids to lose weight. We never make, you know, this was obviously in the in the conventional weight paradigm where the idea of weight loss for some people was still being celebrated. But even then, even in that paradigm, what we were taught was kids are not supposed to lose weight. 
you can slow down their weight gain so that they catch up in height and their body evens out, which like that is also problematic, of course. But it was like, you know, never make a kid lose weight. And now, 10 years later, whatever, we're seeing that kids are actually being made to lose weight. And I don't know what's being taught in dietetics programs now, but we're seeing that there are weight loss interventions for kids where it's not about just slowing down their rate of weight gain so that their height catches up, but actually actively making them lose weight. And that is so problematic for growing kids. They need to gain weight in order to grow, in order to develop and have their bodies function as as intended. Right. Yeah. It's just ugh. that uh, fast track study in in Australia is just. Yeah, that's so upsetting. A horrifying example of that. Yeah. And thank God we I, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast yet, but this is like an intermittent fasting study in kids, which is horrifying. And Louise Adams, a former food psych guest and colleague in Australia, has been leading the charge on opposing the fast track trial. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes because it's really, if we can, everybody who's listening to this sign the petition against it, I think that would be really helpful. And she's also been, I think, raising money to help oppose it too. Although by the time this comes out, who knows where <laughs> where that's going to be. The fast track trial might still be going full steam ahead, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so much work needs to be done in correcting the weight bias that exists in pediatrics and society in general. And I, I really am grateful for your work in doing that because it sounds like you're really helping bring families along and helping, you know, save kids from this kind of weight biased treatment. Yeah, trying to. It's hard <laughs> one family at a time. So hoping hoping to do some um some things with bigger impact like, you know, through research and some papers and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, well that's awesome. It's also needed. And you have your book too. Can you tell us more about your book and and what that covers? Yes, so my book is When Your Teen Has an Eating Disorder, Practical Strategies to Help Your Teen Recover from Anorexia, Bulimia, and Binge Eating. And it was published by New Harbinger in 2018. And it's basically a book for parents whose teens have an eating disorder and using family-based treatment principles, how they can actively help their teen to recover. That's awesome. And where can people find it and also find you and learn more about your work online? So they can find the book via Amazon, and it's also on my website, and my website is eatingdisordertherapyla.com, and that's the uh, name of my group practice, which is based in Los Angeles, and I do, I provide therapy both in Los Angeles and a little bit online uh, in New York, uh, where I'm also licensed, and I have a group practice in Los Angeles focused on eating, primarily eating disorders, but also anxiety and depression. And we see people of all ages with eating disorders. That's awesome. It's such a great resource. And we'll put links to all that in the show notes so people can find you and learn more about your work. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. This was awesome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Lauren Mulheim for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. 
This episode was brought to you by my forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is now available for pre-order. Pre-ordering is an amazing way to help spread the anti-diet message because it helps the book get seen by more people so that we can change the world and so that you have more allies for your recovery from diet culture. Pre-order the book now at christyharrison.com slash book. That's christyharrison.com slash book. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path for yourself, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 198. That's christyharrison.com slash 198. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. A big thanks, as always, to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, and our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, who is about to go on maternity leave for the summer, so we're wishing her well and congratulations. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Ooh.